Ah, welcome. I'm so glad to see you. Please, come and take a seat here at the Backstabbers Dinner Club. I'll be your maitre d' for this evening, Terry McLaren Fraser, as we go through some of history's greatest traitors, turncoats, and collaborators. Introduction and Early Day Treachery So, hello, and welcome to this first episode of my brand new podcast, The Backstabbers Dinner Club. A podcast that will take a look at history's greatest and most infamous, or famous, turncoats, traitors, and collaborators. I'm very excited to bring this to the internet, having been fascinated with the ideas behind what makes someone change allegiance, whether it's political ideology, financial gain, or something else entirely. People have been changing loyalties and selling each other out since time immemorial. Together through this series, I aim to highlight the conspiracies, double-dealing, and backstabbing throughout the course of human history. Now, I know straight away some people will probably disagree with the title of the podcast, Backstabbers Dinner Club. In truth, it's a short, punchy title, designed to emphasise the relatively light-hearted nature of this attempt to educate. There will, I hope, be repeated attempts to show that I take each person seriously and evaluate the reasons why they would be considered a traitor, and whether those are indeed just when weighed up against the evidence. I also feel it proper at this point, however, to state that from the start, in modern times, some of these terms have become very emotionally charged. Politicians are being called traitors left and right for myriad offences. Bob Dylan was called a traitor for appearing on stage with an electric guitar. Now, we will have politicians in this list, but Bob Dylan most assuredly will not be. So, for the record, we will only be counting those people who demonstrably acted against the interest of the government and or the state at the time of their actions, or who were suspected of acting in such a way. This will include people that both in my opinion and historical consensus were wrongly accused of treason, or whose trials were political in nature with treason picked as the worst charge possible to malign their reputations. Under this category we would have people such as Brutus, Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plotters, Mary Queen of Scots, the leaders of the Easter Rising in Ireland, and even Nelson Mandela. Turncoat is of course another charged political term, but one whose original term comes from a military background, with soldiers turning their coats inside out to show they were no longer fighting the enemy, or to receive a new uniform from their masters, thus turning their coat over to their new bosses. We'll feature these two from a military context, including but not limited to the man most synonymous with that label, Benedict Arnold of the Continental Army of the United States. In this category, I would also include some spies and double agents, men and women who would either willingly go to the enemy to sow misinformation, or hid loyalties to a foreign intelligence. Within these people, I would class Oleg Gordievsky, Agents Garbo, Zigzag, Ursula Kaczynski, and the CIA agent Aldrich Ames. The last category, collaborators, will focus on those who, in some form or another, decided to work with an occupying power or enemy force. Some of these people are avowed believers in the new regime, or a bitter enemy, to that it replaced. Others will be trying to make the best of a bad situation, perhaps trying to limit their exposure or others to the wrath of the new government, at the risk of very hefty reprisals when they lose. Now, there can be many factors behind collaboration for every person, and some people are rightly demonised, while others are victims of circumstance. The line between the two can be very, very blurry at times, and there's several instances in my reading I felt very uncomfortable giving someone the condemnation of a traitor or collaborator, and others I feel it entirely deserves. Now, within this category, we'll look at the Vichy regime in France, Quisling of Norway, and even pre- and post-World War II examples, such as the client states of the Cold War powers, 
and even current events. Since these cases have been throughout human history, it might be best to start with some cases from the times of the ancients, tales that often devolve into myth and legend at some points, and are considered the bedrock in modern Western society. So let me start with the man who embodies everyone's first account of betrayal within the Western world. A man whose name has become synonymous with the act of betrayal. A man so reviled in Dante's Inferno, he resides in the lowest part of the ninth circle of hell, condemned to damnation for all of eternity. I am of course referring to Judas Iscariot. We know very little outside of the Bible on Judas Iscariot. In fact, we only know that his father's name is Simon, as it's mentioned in a verse of the Bible concerned with the Last Supper. Even the etymology of his name is open to debate. Some historians have argued Iscariot has come from Keriot, a bit like saying he's James of Glasgow. Others have claimed that Iscariot is a corruption of the ancient Latin term Sicari, a term which was used to describe a zealous movement in Jerusalem who was waging an insurrection against Roman forces in 70 AD when they occupied Jewish holy lands. What is known about Judas, however, is that he became one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, men who preached Jesus' word and supported the man they saw as a man of God. In some of the Gospels, Judas is portrayed as treasurer of the group, and he's accused in some accounts of stealing money from the group at points and being notoriously tight with funds so he could skim money, including the account where Mary Magdalene was said to wash Jesus' feet. Judas is said to have turned to the others and complained that Mary was using too much oil for the ritual and could she stop please because it was quite expensive. Whether that's true, or whether it's a case after the fact to justify Judas as the villain of the tale, that's a matter of opinion. But it's said that Judas approached the head priests and offered to hand Jesus to them. The price agreed for this treachery was 30 pieces of silver, which some would have interpreted from the book of Exodus as referring to the price of a slave. Judas, now knowing he would betray the man he followed, attended the meal that would become known as the Last Supper. The Gospels here give a mixed account of what happens, with Matthew saying that Jesus says someone would betray him. In this account, when Judas asks Jesus to confirm that it's not him, Jesus merely replies with the words, You said it. In the book of John, however, the event is portrayed as far more dramatic. In this account, Jesus announces he will be betrayed by one of their number. As the disciples ask who of their number would betray the Lord, Jesus takes some bread and says he will dip it. In what is not clear, many people have argued from the time, it was probably the Roman fish sauce garum, and then hand it to the one who will betray him. After dipping the bread, Jesus hands it to Judas Iscariot. John's Gospel says that Satan enters Judas at this point, with Jesus turning to him and saying, Whatever it is you're going to do, do it quickly. Judas then hurries off to the elders, who form a mob to advance up the hill to the gardens of Gethsemane, where Jesus was praying and resting after dinner. Judas is said to then have turned to the head priests and stated he would greet Jesus with a kiss, and this would be the man that they would arrest. Upon entering the garden, Judas proclaimed greetings, Rabbi, to Jesus and kissed him. Jesus, in some of these Gospels, is said to have reacted with some surprise and perhaps a little disdain that he'd be greeted in such an overly familiar manner, but it was clear from the approaching crowd the sign was given. Jesus was seized by the crowd, taken into custody. Some disciples tried to fight back, but they were stopped by Jesus himself, who ordered his followers not to react with violence. After this betrayal, Judas is said to have become overwhelmed with remorse and attempted to return the money to the priests, who wanted nothing to do with it. Judas then threw the money into the temple and is said by Matthew in his book 
to have committed suicide by hanging. And thus ends the story of Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed the Son of God. Or was he? You see, if you believe that man's destiny is predetermined, one could argue that Judas was a necessary evil, if you will. I mean, without his betrayal, Jesus isn't seized, he's not condemned, and he's not sentenced to die, thereby sacrificing himself for the sins of man and returning to the people the kingdom of God. This point's heavily alluded to in the apocryphal Gospel of Judas, a writing found amongst the Nag Hammadi scrolls, which were all written in the ancient language of Coptic. In this story, Judas leaves the Last Supper and is lamenting in the garden, only to be comforted by Jesus. After hearing Judas mourn what he's about to do, Jesus reassures him it's all part of the plan, and that everyone has to play their allotted part. Nonetheless, this gospel isn't included in the accepted canon of the Bible, so Judas is forever the man who sold the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver, and then paid for it with his life. A man who, despite enabling the redemption of humanity and the cleansing of their sins, is reviled for his methods. For his aid in the arrest and crucifixion of a man his followers considered the Messiah, Judas Iscariot became the archetypal hated traitor and a cultural fixed point for what people look for when they encounter treachery of the worst kind. There's many turncoats throughout history. We'll get to all of them in time, but we'll give you a good primer on the kind of characters and motivations might I present the ancient aristocrat of Athens, Alcibiades. For those of you who've played Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you may be familiar with Alcibiades as a scheming, wise-cracking, bi-possibly-pansexual warrior. But there's way more to him than just a side quest in the Peloponnesian Wars. The city-state Athens was involved in a costly trade war with Sparta, a trade dispute that ended up escalating into a full-blown military conflict. Alcibiades was born in around about 450 BC, and raised in a rather well-to-do family in Athens, with Pericles, a man who would become one of the most prominent statesmen and generals for the Athenian state. It's said that one of the young men's tutors in rhetoric, oration and morality was the man considered the father of Western philosophy, Socrates. It's down to Socrates to make the young Alcibiades ready for life, but Alcibiades seems by all accounts to have one of those I'm sexy and I know it kind of men, given how many accounts talk of him being obsessed with his looks and a man keen to indulge his own pleasures. Nonetheless, Alcibiades remained protective of Socrates, saving him during a battle in the Peloponnesian War, though it could be argued he was returning the favour for Socrates saving him previously, as the two had developed a strong mutual bond which some have interpreted as teacher and student, and others, like Plato, interpreted as the two being lovers. By 420 BC, at the age of 30, Alcibiades was becoming highly influential among the Athenian ruling classes and masses. Using this newfound influence and power, he argued for a continuation of the war that had raged for seven years. In a swift repudiation of the recently agreed Peace of Nicias, this treaty was negotiated as a compromise between Athens and Sparta to avoid what had become somewhat of a meat grinder of a conflict where both sides lost territory and high-ranking aristocrats and statesmen in fighting. The agreement was highly flawed. Nobody was really happy with the outcome, which was somewhat typical of all compromises. It was, much like treaties of ancient and historical warring parties, designed mostly to buy time and breathing space. Alcibiades was, however, ready to take a flamethrower, or maybe, to keep him with the times, a jar of flaming pitch, to the treaty to go for all-out war and victory against the enemies of Athens. He fully used every skill of cunning to torpedo the treaty with Athenians, 
he would use his personality to double-cross the Spartan delegates sent to ease the tensions. Alcibiades would tell the Spartans that, given his influence, he could help convince people to work with Sparta, but that the Athenians were ambitious and they would only listen to him. Convinced by this, the Spartans put their trust in this impressive and persuasive new friend. When he asked them in the assembly what powers they had, the Spartans spoke the words Alcibiades agreed. They had no independent authority from Sparta, and they had no power to negotiate on behalf of their leaders. If any of them had been particularly good of hearing, they would have heard the trap they'd walked into snap shut behind them. This plot to wreck the treaty complete, Alcibiades turned the knife on the Spartans, loudly proclaiming this at odds with their previous statements, and using this discrepancy to attack their character, and claim that Sparta had never been serious about peace or negotiating. This lie convinced many people in Athens, hook, line and sinker. They abandoned the treaty, humiliated its negotiators, and appointed Alcibiades to the general of Athens. One of his first acts was to call together the city's allies. Several states answered the call, and a grand alliance marched to take on the forces of Sparta. Unfortunately, Alcibiades' sabre-rattling, an attempt to take on the Spartans, fell completely flat. In 418 BCE, at the Battle of Mantinea, the anti-Spartan alliance met their adversary in battle, and not to put too fine a point on it, were beaten all over the place. In their poor communication and lack of manoeuvrability, the Spartans entered a gap in the Athenian coalition line and wrought absolute death and destruction. As the Spartans almost encircled the left flank, coalition forces turned on the battlefield and ran. Spartan forces then quickly made diplomatic overtures to the territory of Argos, who turned on Athens and evicted them from Apidorus. The fallout of this battle in Athens was, as far as Alcibiades concerned, the loss of his influence and the fall from favour, as he was blamed for the warmongering attitude that whipped the city-state into the conflict. One politician, Hyperbolus, and if anyone's found a better name to describe a ruling politician I've yet to hear it, had tried to capitalise on the defeat and remove some of his adversaries from Athens, and so made moves to put either Nicias or Alcibiades under the official edict of ostracism which involved the electorate taking a vote to banish people into exile. Now, I hadn't mentioned Nicias at this point other than the peace he negotiated, but I'll introduce him now to make sense of what happens next. Nicias was a politician and a military leader. It was Nicias who Alcibiades double-crossed by meeting the Spartans in secret and sabotaging the negotiations that Nicias had worked so hard to cultivate. This enabled the rallying cry of Alcibiades to win the day and show his importance as he hadn't been consulted in negotiating the peace in the first place. Hence, I can understand anyone who would feel confused that not only was Nicias the first person Alcibiades approached, but that Nicias agreed to put this difference aside and unite with Alcibiades to have his rather sizable voting block turn the tables on Hyperbolus, who himself was ostracised. The banishment of Hyperbolus was the ultimate in Machiavellian cynical politics, where two enemies unite to combat a third purely out of self-interest. Plutarch, in his writings, claimed the Athenian populace was so sickened at the blatant, cynical manipulation of the system that while it wasn't ever struck off the statute books, Hyperbolus was the last Athenian citizen officially ostracised. After removing one threat to their political standing, Alcibiades decided to make a name for himself amongst the populace with a great victory for his chariot team at the Olympic Games. Chastened by the loss at Mantinea, Alcibiades decided again to try for further military aggression in 415 BCE by rallying the Athenian assembly to authorise an invasion of Sicily. Responding to a request from Segesta, 
and Sicilian city-state taking on Salinas, an ally of Syracuse. Since Syracuse was under the control of a faction of ancient Greece that was not very friendly to Athens, it was probably a natural conclusion to ask Athens for help. There grew within the Athenian assembly two very powerful factions, the pro-war party of Alcibiades and the anti-war party led by Nicias. Nicias debated the council's decision to launch a small expedition of ships with minimum to no troop enforcement. Nicias was against sending the expedition at all, speaking in many arguments before the gathering, impressing that sending an expeditionary force would leave them not only at the mercy of Syracuse, but Sparta, which, though peaceful at the moment, wouldn't hesitate to capitalise on Athenian weakness. Nicias also criticised Alcibiades and his pro-war faction, saying they were young, inexperienced in combat, and far too cavalier about throwing away lives and resources in a battle against a powerful enemy with no perceivable benefit to Athens. When Alcibiades was given a chance to respond, he rejected the accusation of being cavalier. He said he was merely doing what had always been done, and representing the interests of the Athenian people. Alcibiades argued it was in Athens' interest to stand up for their allies, and honour would compel them to act. It seemed the assembly was swaying towards Alcibiades, so Nicias had one last throw of the dice. And instead of directly opposing an invasion, Nicias decided to horrify the Athenians by claiming Alcibiades was far too optimistic in his assessment of the troops. He believed they would need twice as many ships and a massive contingent of forces to take on Sicily and Syracuse. This was a massive miscalculation, however, as it appears many took this plan as an endorsement of the position and wholeheartedly voted for authorization to create a massive force to assert Athenian dominance. Over a 100 ships and 5,000 troops were assembled to begin the Athenian conquest, but Alcibiades would not be amongst them if his opponents had their way. The night before the army was due to sail, Alcibiades was arrested and charged with vandalism of the Hermia and public mocking and denigration of the Eleusinian mysteries. The first charge related to an incident where a group of unknown people, or one singular vandal, or whatever you would call someone before vandals became the designated word, made their way around Athens to the Hermi, statues usually dedicated to Hermes as a warding off of evil and bad luck to a city. These statues would comprise of a bust, normally of Hermes at the top, and then further down, as the gods would have intended, a very, very anatomically correct sculpture of male genitalia. The vandal or vandals aforementioned then destroyed many of the statues, including emasculating several of them. To the Athenians, this would be a horrible omen that catastrophe would befall their invasion. Some would capitalise on this fear to show it was in fact down to the outrageous behaviour of Alcibiades and his clique, and try and have them removed from influence and command. Alcibiades was chomping at the bit to defend himself against this charge, and denigrating the revered ceremonies of the Eleusinian Mysteries, which would be a charge akin to blasphemy in many modern legislatures. Alcibiades was allowed to sail with the fleet and left with the charges pending over him. On arrival in Sicily, however, he had a very, very nasty surprise. On a second stop in Catania, Alcibiades was met by a ship who were ordering him to go back to Athens to face trial. His enemies capitalised on his absence, lessening his faction in the assembly to push through a vote for trial. Alcibiades agreed to return and followed the Athenian ship, but the minute he reached Thury in modern-day Italy... Alcibiades put his backup plan in and escaped his captors with his crew. He headed to the only place he could guarantee to be safe from Athens, the city-state of Sparta. Sailing into Spartan territory, Alcibiades made overtures to the Spartans, asking for sanctuary within their ranks, 
promising to render such help to them and their military endeavours against the Athenians that he hoped to make amends for the damage he'd done against them as an Athenian general. Speaking to the Spartan leadership, Alcibiades warned that for Athens, Syracuse was the start. They'd be Sparta next. After this, they would invade everywhere, subjugating everyone like Carthage. This was blatantly overhyping Athenian ambitions and totally exaggerating the original mission they'd set out to do, defending their ally. But this was Alcibiades. He was one of the most persuasive speakers of his day. The Spartans fully believed what he was telling them and offered him a place as an advisor within their ranks, which not only shows how convincing he must have been, but that he was still fully in control of the situation. When news reached Athens that not only had he escaped them, but now Alcibiades had aligned himself with Sparta, he was tried in absentia and sentenced to death should he ever set foot on Athenian soil. With his new friends, Alcibiades moved on Athens with a vengeance. He had the Spartans build a new fort ten miles from Athens, so Spartan forces were visible from the enemy's doorstep. The Spartans also moved to incite revolt, discord and insurrection around Athens' allies by cutting off all resources and train to Athens, except anything procured by sea. This, in turn, showed them as weak, and some of their more fair-weather allies started to look for ways to strike out on their own, which the Spartans fully encouraged. Alcibiades sailed to Ionia, using his speaking skills to convince the Ionians to rebel, but by this time Alcibiades was wearing out his welcome. The Spartan administration of King Aegis II was tiring of its new guest, and the rumours concerning the true parentage of one of the king's heirs, with the unpleasant co-rumour that a Spartan queen was Alcibiades' lover, was enough for anyone to decide to make a move. It was said that someone within the ruling group of Sparta, possibly one of its admirals, had issued orders for Alcibiades' execution, but he was tipped off and ran away to find a new home, this time in what we would call Persia, with the Achaemenid Empire. Like a cat that continually laddens on its feet, Alcibiades had once again found a friendly place to stay, under the powerful protection of the Achaemenid satrap Tisiphanes. To this leader, Alcibiades offered various methods of grinding down the Spartans, while the Spartans were busy beating down the Athenians. This was so Persian forces could sweep both of those weakened foes aside, should the need arise. Following Alcibiades' guidance, Tisiphanes began to throttle the amount of funding and supplies to Sparta, as well as bribing officers and officials to find any levels of intelligence that the Achaemenids could use to their advantage. This was of benefit to the Empire, but very little interest to Alcibiades. In truth, he was utilising Achaemenid power to impress on Athens he was still with them to smash the Spartans, but he'd had to flee from the witch hunt and the unjust persecution he'd suffered. He wanted to come home and reclaim his place in Athens again. Alcibiades was going to find it difficult with the current administration, so he was resolving to overthrow that administration and bring in a coup with a group of oligarchs. With this result, Alcibiades thought he could simply sail back and claim power, but some in Athens feared he would return to settle scores, so they went to their enemy Sparta and discussed the idea. Alcibiades had also unfortunately overplayed his hand in thinking he could influence Tisiphanes, who remained firmly neutral within the Peloponnesian Wars, and his failure to compromise had left Alcibiades hanging with the plotters, who carried out their coup regardless. The problem was, unbelievably, some people on the island of Samos were actually fans of democracy, and decided to fight a counter-coup which Alcibiades joined. I mean, it makes your head spin, but you really do have to kind of admire the sheer audacity of the man. Upon arriving in Samos, 
Alcibiades' oratory skills convinced all of the troops assembled he had influence with Persia and could wreak havoc for the new Athenian hunter. If his plan to appoint a general of the counter-coup, then it worked. But it might have worked a bit too well, given the tropes then proposed to sail immediately to engage the Athenian oligarchs in battle. Alcibiades then had to talk them out of this, given that the conflict would probably split Athens and leave her at the mercy of Sparta. In the meantime, ships were assembled and sailed to prevent Sparta and Persia controlling the seas. In the battle that followed, Alcibiades delivered blow after blow to the Peloponnesian fleet, which was only saved from destruction by Persian support. The Persian satrap arrested Alcibiades when he tried to parley, but after several battles, the Athenians were dominating the seas, with the Spartans suing for peace, though Athens by this point was pressing home its advantage. After many victories that were hard fought and won, Alcibiades was eventually welcomed back to Athens, with all charges dropped and appointed land and sea commander. He celebrated this return by leading the Eleusinian mystery procession that year, ironic given it was the ceremony that he was sentenced to death for blaspheming, but it could be argued this marked the high point of his career. Eventually the Athenians, with Alcibiades at their head, moved to protect Samos, making it all the way to the town of Notium. Alcibiades and his deputy Antiochus had not banked on General Lysander, the new leader of Sparta. Lysander enjoyed the continued support of the Persians, as well as knowing he needed to construct a sizable navy to take on the Athenians. Frustratingly for Alcibiades, Lysander refused to take the bait and attack Athens, to the point that someone had to go and get supplies. After making Antiochus promise he wouldn't try and fight Lysander while he was gone, Alcibiades went out to get the provisions, in a move as predictable as a slasher movie, and should surprise nobody, Antiochus immediately moved to goad Lysander into a fight by sailing ten ships as a trap to lure Sparta into an ambush. But Lysander took the opportunity to strike. In the assault, Antiochus's ship was targeted and sunk, leading to the death of the leader Alcibiades had left in his stead. Lysander chased the remaining nine back to the Athenian fleet, where Sparta sank another seven ships and captured fifteen, leaving the remaining fifty-eight Athenian ships to scurry back to port to regroup. Alcibiades continually tried to fight Lysander, but Sparta refused to engage and just kept watching the Athenian ships. Whilst the battle could be classed as a large skirmish, the political ramifications were huge. Sparta had humiliated Athens, and the enemies of the upstart Athenian generals now had the perfect pretext to remove Alcibiades from command. Arguing the appointment of Antiochus was a dismissible offence, the coalition succeeded in having his death blamed on Alcibiades, who chose not to fight on the matter, even though it could be argued Antiochus was to blame for his own failures and death. Alcibiades and his allies were removed after this, and the man himself fell from grace. Realising he'd outstayed his welcome with Athens, he never returned, but made his way to the Achaemenid Empire to join Ataxerxes, but he never made it there. The accounts differ as to whether his death came by blade or bow, but in 404 BCE, Alcibiades was tracked down by assassins who were believed to have been sent on Lysander of Sparta's orders and killed. Alcibiades is a complicated and morally ambiguous figure in history. He clearly only acted for his own advancement and glory, and the pursuit of gaining power. He had absolutely no qualms about using enemies for his own gains and then discarding them, or even working against former allies in order to get what he wants. But by being smart, devious, and an excellent public speaker, Alcibiades was able to gain from empire to empire and escape murderous retribution several times. Despite rhetorical bluster, he was a capable commander, ready to go for glory and act conservatively when needed. He never managed to rule the Greek world, but his audacity, guile and cunning 
have immortalised him as one of the best-known turncoats and Greek statesmen of the age. Finally, in this episode, we turn to collaborators. Now, there's many people who we can mention here, and I'll grant many of these are going to come from the era of the Second World War. As in our own time, the stain of being collaborator sticks particularly hardest with those who worked with or alongside the regime of the Nazi Germans. But in sticking with my theme of the ancients, I'll instead focus on a man who started as a rebel, then openly collaborated against his former allies with the Roman Empire and was welcomed into the fold, even becoming fully Romanized. I'm referring to the best-known historian of the Jewish-Roman uprisings and wars, Flavius Josephus. Josephus was born Joshua ben Matiahu in Jerusalem around the year 37 CE, when Jerusalem was part of Roman-occupied Judea. Coming from a wealthy family with an influential father named Matthias, a highly influential figure in the priesthood, by his own accounts, Josephus could be considered a precocious teenager. He was consulted on law, though it must be said, for many of these accounts, these are his own personal writings, so they should probably be taken with a grain of salt for reasons of self-aggrandizement or exoneration. In his early 20s, it was said that Josephus was picked by Felix, the Roman procurator, re-governor, of Judea at the time, to undertake a diplomatic mission to Rome, to gain an audience with Emperor Nero, and negotiate some Jewish priests to be released who'd been detained on some legal issue. Josephus writes in his book he was caught in a shipwreck and claims it was only via divine providence that he survived. Returning from Rome, Josephus was plunged headlong into the outbreak of a revolt against Roman rule in Judea. There were factions within the Judean territories who believed they could overthrow Rome, and so it was that he claimed in his account that Josephus had to lecture people on the futility of conflict against Rome, given that it was better armed, better trained, and would overrun rebel forces. Now, this may have been for the benefit of his future Roman patrons, and also written with the full vision of hindsight, but it isn't hard to see the Roman army probably was the greatest superpower at the time. Nonetheless, there were people who wanted to fight Rome, both independently-minded and religious zealots. They won the day, and the riots against Roman occupation turned into a full-scale rebellion. Josephus himself had argued against this, but claimed later he would have been murdered had he continued to oppose it, so he signed up with rebel forces and was appointed the military commander of Galilee after Roman forces were defeated there and pushed into Syria. Josephus describes in his account how his governorship was spent trying to reconcile the factions throughout the city. One faction felt that the city should continue its allegiance to Rome, the second wasn't keen on Rome but felt negotiation was the best way to ensure its autonomy, and the third, the Zealots, were in Josephus's view the most dangerous. They were fanatically ready to fight Rome and were willing to vent their fury on Romans and their collaborators alike. It was this factionalism Josephus was juggling whilst trying to remember that the Roman army was constantly advancing. And advancing was something they were doing quite rapidly. The Emperor Nero had sent one of his generals to avenge the Jewish rebel killing of the governor of Syria at the Battle of Beth Horon. This general was Titus Flavius Vespasian, a Roman statesman who arrived with several cohorts of troops. Josephus tried his best to fortify and defend the rebel-held Judean areas, but he was gradually pushed back to the town of Jotapata, where the conquering Roman forces slaughtered thousands. Josephus and other chroniclers detail that roughly 40,000 civilians were killed, with a thousand taken into a lifetime of slavery. Josephus and roughly 40 of his followers were pursued into a cave complex, with Vespasian's forces blocking the exits and demanding the surrender of everyone inside. In Josephus's own account, 
he stated that the men inside decided they would all rather die than be taken alive. The problem being, of course, that suicide was considered a mortal sin. So, in order to avoid eternal damnation, Josephus suggested they draw lots and have men kill each other. He claimed in later accounts it was thanks to God that he was among the last two left and that the last two were taken from the cave. But some modern scholars have disputed this and said that Josephus may have devised the system so that he would be amongst the last men standing. With his knowledge of maths and strategy, it's not hard to see that he could have fixed this. But regardless, he was taken from the cave to stand before Vespasian to face punishment. Vespasian's son, also named Titus, bade his men show commiseration to Josephus and not be too hasty in dragging him away for summary execution. Vespasian spared him, but only on account of him being sent to Rome to stand before Nero. Upon hearing this, Josephus told Vespasian he needed to speak to him and had a private matter to discuss. When left alone with Vespasian and Titus, Josephus span a yarn that God bestowed upon him a vision that Vespasian would be emperor of all and that Josephus was by his side. Now, the issue I have with this is twofold. One, I'm absolutely certain I'd tell Vespasian he was god emperor of Arrakis if I thought he'd spare me. And two, one of the major accounts of this, and pretty much this entire conflict, comes from Josephus. Throughout his entire writings, he is extremely self-serving, and he tries to vindicate himself at every available opportunity. But nonetheless, Vespasian decided to keep Josephus close, and the Judean himself decided to keep very close ties with Vespasian and Titus. The Romans began their vicious and swift campaign to reconquest Roman Judea until they were at the gates of Jerusalem. After the start of a very drawn-out siege, where Rome slowly ground through as the rebels held on to their last redoubt, Titus would send Josephus to his former allies to negotiate a surrender. This went about as well as you'd expect. The defenders of Jerusalem jeered at Josephus and threw rocks and various other weapons at him. Josephus said that many people wanted to desert to Rome and save themselves from calamitous retribution. But we've only got his word for that. He was writing for a Roman audience, and his patrons would both go on to become the first two emperors of the Flavian dynasty. So I think we can be forgiven for Josephus probably writing for a domestic audience. The Roman army would march on Jerusalem from the siege, with one account stating a Roman soldier threw a flaming torch at the third wall of the temple. The torch landed on the roof and fire spread across the temple with tragically destructive consequences. The army advanced into chaos. The defenders fell back to Herod's palace, but by September 9th, the city was fully in Roman hands. Josephus wrote that a million were killed, but given there weren't even a million people in Jerusalem, that's probably a massive exaggeration on his part. Apart from a later stand against Rome in Masada four years later at 74 CE, the Jewish revolt was all but finished. There's archaeological evidence, however, that Josephus's depictions of the fault are entirely inaccurate, and scholarly dispute of the entire Jewish force committing mass suicide in defiance of Rome. Some people think that Rome probably massacred the fault, but Josephus is pretty much the only contemporary account we have left, and it sets in history the romantic notion of Zapata later in Mexico, that one would rather die on their feet than continue living on their knees. After the war and its triumph for Rome, Josephus went back to Rome to receive the patronage of Vespasian, who had mounted a successful campaign to become Roman Emperor. With the ruler of the empire and his heir amongst his patrons, Josephus became a favourite amongst the Flavian dynasty court. 
He was awarded full Roman citizenship and land in Judea by the emperor. When Vespasian died, Josephus stayed in the good graces of court with his son Titus and then Domitian after him. He married, he had children, and in his legacy became one of the preeminent scholars of Rome. He's still looked at today in somewhat of authority, but it should never be forgotten he was indeed a rebel, turned Roman collaborator, and some may even say propagandist par excellence. We don't know exactly when he passed away, but it was certain Josephus lived a long and very successful life after throwing in his lot with Rome, announcing Roman magnanimity and mercy, even as he witnessed Rome crushing revolt and many Jewish rebels dying at the hands of his newfound allies. So there we have it. A brief taste of what's to come. People in history can be revered for knowing all on the right side of history or reviled for selling their souls to the devil. We can look into all of the people and motives over time, from ancient Rome to the modern day. We will cover all the cases of famous historical backstabbing, starting with a betrayal so notorious you'd know it from English class, from Shakespeare's three words, etu brute. Now, if you did miss English, or you missed it in my class and you happened to read Macbeth instead, I'm of course referring to the people in our next episode, the assassins of Julius Caesar. <laughs>